Thank you for joining us today for Armchair Historians. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Cannon. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. You can also find us at armchairhistorians.com. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a subscribing member through Patreon. You can find links to both in the episode notes. Today we are talking to Melanie Hamilton. Melanie is a writer based in Tbilisi, Georgia. Not Georgia the state, but Georgia the country. I had to Google it. In 2018, Melanie chucked it all. She quit her job and moved abroad to pursue her passion, which meets at the cross-section of food, culture, and history. Melanie, who is a native Texan, her husband and dog child in tow, made temporary homes in Catalonia, Valencia, Comunidad, and Andalusia before arriving in Tbilisi. To find out more about Melanie and her exciting journey, go to savorandyour.com. I'll put a link in the episode notes. At Savor and Your, you'll find stories of history, war, famine, and the people at the forefront who shaped the world we know today. You will also learn about the food of different regions, including its history and culture. Today, Melanie talks about one of her favorite historical figures, Ida B. Wells. Melanie Hamilton, welcome and thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me and I am happy to be here. We start every interview out with basically the same question. So what is your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? My favorite history that we are talking about today is easily the story of Ida B. Wells. She was an anti-lynching activist and an incredible investigative journalist at the time. Her story is just mind-blowing. Could you give us a little background about her? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So Ida was born in the mid-1800s in a place called Holly Springs, Mississippi, and she was actually born into slavery. Six months after she was born, we all know the Emancipation Proclamation came about and the remaining uh, Confederate slaves were freed, including her family. After this happened, her parents and her siblings, they were recently freed from slavery. She was one of six. Her parents became extremely involved in advocating for recently freed people and coming up with uh, different things that they could do within the community to help kind of empower recently freed people, help them find jobs, help them get proper education, read, write, all of that. And her father actually started a school. Then by the time she was 16, she became orphaned because of the death of her parents. And this kind of sent her off on this trail to kind of, I like to think that she was trying to continue a lot of the work that they were doing. She took care 
of her siblings and eventually became an investigative journalist. But her main thing, her main, uh, I guess, pillar, you could say, was anti-lynching. And she wound up making that her entire life's work to investigating these things, these, these lynchings, how they happen, where they happen, why they happen, and how to stop it. Wow. Do you think that she was successful in her work and what she was trying to accomplish? Yes. Yes, I do. So in her investigation of lynchings, when she first set off, uh, so there was one one big thing that happened that kind of spiraled her into this. It was an event called the People's Grocer Lynching, and it happened in a small uh, little subdivision, I guess you could say, right outside of Memphis, Tennessee, in a place called The Curve. And these three uh, black grocers were... They were basically attacked by this angry white mob because they were bringing competition to white businesses in town. This was extremely common at the time. They were attacked and then the police were called because these grocers, these businessmen were defending themselves. But of course, they wind up being arrested because they're defending themselves, but they're black. And it's, you know, these 30, 40 white man's opinion against theirs. They're taken to jail, and later that night, they're kidnapped from the jail. All three of them are lynched. And one of these men uh, was actually really great friends with Ida that really promoted civil rights, but it was kind of a small-time thing that was really just in Memphis. Like I said, it kind of put her at a crosswords because she thought, I can pursue this and I can try to stop this from happening or I can stay here and be comfortable writing about these things that go on in town um, or I can do something bigger. And she chose to do something bigger after this after this lynching happened in this uh, small city right outside of Memphis. Like I said, she set off all across the southern U.S. and she investigated nearly 700 lynchings that had taken place over the past 10 years. And in her investigating this, why this is so important is because before Ida came along, nobody was counting these lynchings. Nobody was paying attention to where they were happening and uh, for, for what reasons, quote unquote. I mean, there's no reason, but for what reasons they were happening, nobody had written this stuff down. It was really just something that would happen. And then because of the way that law enforcement was at the time and the way that these communities worked, nobody cared and nobody minded to jot this stuff down. There would be towns that would have, you know, let's say a hundred lynchings in the past five years. And there's maybe 70%, 60% of those actually have a record of ever even happening. So there were so many things that were falling through the cracks. And it's all thanks to her that she ever even cared to kind of go and be this trailblazer, I guess you could say, and investigate all this stuff. Because nobody, there was no log of this before. And she's the one who went to these towns and found out, you have a real problem here. There's actually a real problem all over the country with this. And without her, I mean, who knows how much longer it would have been, because at the time that the people's grocer lynching happened, 
from that time for the next 50-ish years, there was going to be another 3,000 lynchings total. Do you think that her, you know, shining light on it had, you know, positive effect? And if so, like, what is the evidence of that? I think that at first, these really rural communities that she was going to, of course, there was a really negative reaction. There was an extremely negative reaction because people don't want to be told that they're doing something wrong. Not only that they're doing something wrong, but that they're doing something evil. So I think that at first it was negative. Uh, I think total reaction was negative at first. But I think that overall her outcome was extremely positive. And I think if I had to name something that could that it could be evidenced by, it would be the fact that she later went on to prove and to do all these editorials. So while she was investigating this stuff, she was still uh, a journalist and still an editor. So she was exposing the fact, and I think this is the biggest thing that she exposed. She was exposing the fact that the reason these men were being lynched was actually not because they were raping women. This was a huge thing. This was a huge reason. The main reason that these cops and these townspeople and stuff like that were able to get away with these barbaric lynchings was because most of the time they would say, well, this man um, raped a woman or he tried to or something like that, which lots of issues with that, too, of course. But that was kind of their justification for doing something awful like that. And what she found in her investigations were that there were actually really few cases of all 700 lynchings that she investigated that actually involved any sort of accusation of any sexual assault, not even just rape, but that involved any sort of accusation of that at all. And a lot of those accusations were women who were having affairs and in some cases, women who, yes, were uh, assaulted by these men or whatever, which doesn't even matter in the grand scheme of things. It's not a right to do that to someone. But that that was a really, really uh, small percentage of, of all the different families and townspeople and law enforcement officials and stuff like that that she interviewed to get to the bottom of these lynchings. The main reason for these lynchings was all business competition. So you have all of these newly freed uh, people who've been enslaved forever, who pretty much all of these white people still view as very less than, I mean, very, very the lowest you can be. And this, this sort of disgust and hate for this, if they come in, if a black man comes in and opens, you know, a gas station or like a shoe business or something like that, if there is another white guy in town who also has a gas station and he happens to feel threatened, whatever his ego is hurt, or maybe a few customers go there, uh, go to the, you know, gas station or the shoe place that would lead to him being lynched. So then this just breeds a whole other series of problems because you have these black people who are terrified to go into business because of what could happen to them. But then on the other side, all of these white people think that, you know, these men are being lynched because they're horrific race or uh, rapists and all of this stuff, which 
again, doesn't matter anyway, but it's just two completely different sides, you know, and the, the truth lies in the fact that a lot of time this was a competition. You know, I don't, I didn't really know about her before this. And of course, this all comes out in the day, you know, we're in uh, June 2020, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And also we are in the middle of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and the realization of, I'm going to not say this right, but, you know, that there is still huge racism, covert and overt, systemic racism. And, you know, the indicator of that is we need an Ida right now to be, uh, you know, keeping data on this, but of course is mm-hmm. the the unrelenting shooting and killing of men of color um, in, in that, that this is our lynching today. And so one of the things I want to do with my show, like I was saying before we started recording, is I want to bring more diverse uh, stories and uh, voices to the forefront. And I think this is this is an important story that we need to know about and learn from. And uh, I was just, you know, Ida was, she didn't, it seems like she didn't try to necessarily work with the institutions, you know, like the NAACP, even though she was a co-founder, was she a co-founder? Mm-hmm. Of the she was, she went on to do that and so many other things. But she wasn't, she wasn't interested in, placating the white man or anything like that. She was just interested in getting uh, to the truth. And I think in some ways that's why she, her legacy maybe isn't as loud as a, you know, Booker T Washington or somebody like that, because she wasn't trying to negotiate with nobody. She was saying, you know, this is what's happening to these people. And she was shining a light on it without, you know, trying to negotiate with, the white and trying to play nicely you know and I think that's a big thing my opinion at least today is in my opinion a lot of white people when they see a story from a person of color uh like Martin Luther King for example they love to pin him on everything because he was so peaceful in their mind and in and in their mind you know, you have this man who played by the rules and did every, you know, quote unquote, did everything right, followed the law and all of this. When when in reality, Martin Luther King did advocate uh, for, for protest and even to have violent protests if needed. But white people, I think, I myself am white, but I, I think that white people like to use him as an example because he kind of colored inside the lines in their mind. So a lot of people, um, I used to hear this when I was growing up, that Malcolm X was a bad example of a civil rights leader because he was violent, he was chaotic, and he was all this stuff. That that has nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. They're just saying, I don't want to listen to this person because in my opinion, he's being unruly and he's not, uh, you know, what it really all goes back to is he is not protesting the way that I want him to protest. Right. Mm-hmm. Quote unquote. I mean, that's really what it is. So I think that in general, history likes to honor these people who 
as a general idea, you could say that they followed the rules and they walked in a straight line, you know, and Ida was just not like that. I mean, she took a lot of things into her own hands and so did a lot of these historical figures who, mm-hmm. who really, really changed the tides, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just kind of self-disclose. Uh, obviously, I am a white woman. And um, I was raised by a police officer from Cleveland, Ohio, who was racist, you know, and I was raised to believe that black people were the enemy, even though as a kid, I kind of always knew that there was something really wrong with that. And it never resonated as right with me. What I've discovered, you know, through this wave of bringing attention to what is really going on uh, in the black community is that. Uh, there's a book out called White Fragility. I don't know if you've heard of it, and I cannot think of the author's name. Do you know her name? I don't know her name, but I have heard of that book. You know, and it really talks about getting going deeper into our racism, what causes the sy- systemic racism, and making us look at the the what we think may seem subtle as we make the discoveries as white people to where we are basically perpetuating um, this ability for things like uh, shootings of, uh, you know, people of men of color, uh, that type of thing. And and so there's all these little uh, seemingly benign things that we do, but when we really take them out into the light of day, which this book, White Fragility, really uh, brings to the forefront. I'll put a link to the information about the book in the episode notes. And it's really uncomfortable and I'm uncomfortable because I have to look at myself and I have to see, you know, where I am responsible for perpetuating this. Right. Same, Um, same here, same here. You know, and there's a part of me that sometimes is like, it's just too much. I don't want to deal with it. And I can't do that. I can't afford to do that because by doing that, I'm contributing to the problem. And so I think that it's easy for um, groups of people to just, you know, shove it in the back and not look at it. And here we are. It's another opportunity to look at how we are really a part of this problem as white people in general. And I, you know, even liberal white people, Ida really caught my eye. You caught my eye. And I'm curious to know what made you decide to write in uh, your blog, Saver and Your, uh, what made you obviously decide to write about that on the day that you chose to, which is in the height of the protests? Sure. So um, I generally love diving into lesser known historical figures who played a key role in something. I, I wrote a piece a while back, a, a couple of months ago, on Eugene Ballard, who was the first black fighter pilot. Nobody's ever heard of this guy. And he lived this incredible life. And, you know, the early half of his life was steeped in racism and so much prejudice. And he made it out and and, uh, he lived this crazy, you know, Gatsby style life in Paris and then uh, became, like I said, first black fighter pilot. And then he opened up a club and he opened up a club. I read that one. Yeah. He lived this incredible life. He fell in love. He had kids. And then he comes back to the U.S. and he's totally spat on, gets no respect uh, and basically lives out his days working as an elevator operator. And I mean, dies alone in an apartment by himself. And 
to me, I'm so inspired by those stories because they really, they paved the way, but for some reason, uh, they're not as well known as um, other big historical figures, you know, like Alan Turing or George Washington, for example, or, you know, all these other people. So I love those things. And uh, I was just researching and I said, I really want to use my platform to amplify these voices of people who people, these, these people, especially women of color who maybe have never even been heard of before. And that's, that's really how I came across her. And I was so inspired by her story of just um, kind of taking things into her own hands. I mean, of course she wasn't in law enforcement or anything, but when she realized, when she got that, um, fire in her belly you could say to to get to the bottom of these lynchings and stop this from happening she didn't um and there's nothing wrong with this but she didn't petition people to do it and she didn't ask other people to do it she didn't even try to get a group together or anything she went out herself and personally investigated and looked all of these really really disgusting things right in the eye the darkest darkest pockets of racism in the south she went to places where literally people were lynched, this specific wooded area, and people would come and have picnics there while the lynching was going on. It was a family event. And she went to these communities and she talked to these people herself. And to me, I just think, you know, not only was she an incredible woman who had a lot of, uh, I guess, we could say ovarian fortitude to be able to do this. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I like that. <laughs> but she, she was a woman of color and she went into these, like the heart of the KKK. She went in and was asking these questions. And I was just so amazed because I had never heard of her before either. And that was my big reason for writing about her because I thought, I don't think I've ever heard this name before. Who is this woman? I see Okay, investigative journalist. And then I start reading more about how not only was she an investigative journalist and, uh, you know, anti-lynching and all this stuff, but in her earlier life, you know, I told you she lost her parents at 16 and then she cared for her remaining siblings. So she lost both of her parents and one sibling to yellow fever in the span of like two days when she was 16. And she was left to take care of the rest of her family. She becomes orphaned and she's only 16 and she has her other siblings to take care of. She should have four other siblings, I believe, to take care of. And she goes to the local school and she lies to them. She tells them that she's 18 so that she can work as a teacher because she has no other way to support her family outside of that. And not only that, but I mean, at this point, slaves had only been freed in Mississippi for 16 years, like 15 and a half years. So she, the odds are really stacked against her. She becomes a teacher. And later on, she moves to Memphis years later after her siblings grow up. And uh, I believe at this point, she's probably around 20, 22 years old. She moves to Memphis with her sisters. She buys a first class ticket because at this time, she's already running the uh, newspaper called the Free Speech and Headlight, I believe, Free Speech and Headlight. And she was co-owner and editor of this newspaper, which kind of brought light to racial injustices in Memphis, which you can imagine 
there was a ton of news about this. I mean, it's the late 1800s and there's still such a long way to go, even to get to where we are now, which isn't great. She's doing that and she's doing pretty well for herself. She manages to make it through raising her siblings at only 16 years old, make it to Memphis, open up her own press. Then she gets on a train. She gets on a first class train and she's asked to leave because they say that she can't sit here because, you know, she may disturb the white people who are in the the cabin of this train. And she refuses. You know, she says no. And this is long before the age of Rosa Parks and all yeah. these other amazing people that came She's later. The Victorian I mean, Rosa Parks. <laughs> right. Nobody was doing this at this time. They would say, OK, because if you don't agree, if you don't say, OK, I mean, there are some big consequences. She says, no, I bought this ticket. I'm sitting here like everyone else. This is a first class cabin. You know, I paid to have my cocktails here and whatever. The conductor comes out and then a few staff of his come out and they escort her off the cabin. They pick her up out of her seat and escort her off the cabin. And she bites one of them on the hand. <laughs> she, quote, she, quote, fastened her teeth onto his palm <laughs> And just bit until she pulled skin off. And she goes out. And this is kind of the first time when I'm researching her. This is the first time I realized, okay, this girl means business. She's not even waiting to until she's made to get off the physical train, not even go to a different cabin. She is literally going out, kicking and screaming and biting and everything. And I think that kind of elevated her more into the publication that she was already running in Memphis. And then things kind of continued to evolve. And eventually there was, like I said, the people's grocery lynching. And as you read about her, you kind of see all these different things that were catalysts for her and how she became so motivated to continue to continue doing this. Because even with the anti-lynching campaigns and all the investigative journalism that she did throughout the South for a few years, she didn't even stop there. I mean, she eventually moved to Chicago and started a whole other chapter. I mean, from start to finish, she went a thousand miles an hour. Yes, she did. Um, And it's surprising that she didn't rise, you know, to the top of the historical record. uh, Absolutely. More. Um, How was she able to continue doing what she did and yet flying under the radar? You know, did she have, how did she make her money? Did she make really good money as a a journalist or? So the, the free speech in Headlight that she ran in Memphis. She continued to run that while she was traveling across the South. And she did do really well for herself. Um, She definitely wasn't struggling in that sense. And while she was continuing to investigate, um, you know, these different cities and stuff where these things were happening, she was continuing to, um, to publicize it and put out articles kind of exposing these areas. And in fact, where her newspapers were printed, that was actually burned down at a point with death threats and you know if you ever come back to memphis because people in memphis got worried oh there's this girl that's the girl who runs the free speech and headlight and she's going and exposing all of this stuff did she own did she herself own the printing press or did she subcontract the printing do you know so she was co-owner and that's actually all i've been able to find on it i can't find who her business partner was she probably went she probably really went under the radar after that with regards to where she was printing her paper so that would make yeah. sense she was hiding mhm 
she kept going. And in fact, just shortly after this, I want to say it was maybe a year after this. And at this time, she would have been 26. And she this was when she authored her first book. And it's called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. So, I mean, these these things, these attacks against her and then trying to run her out of Memphis, it really, it only motivated her further. It only solidified her idea that something had to be done about this type of behavior. Um, so, wow. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And I'm really drawn to stories about uh, strong women like Ida in history who just keep moving forward with what they know and believe to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I, you know, I, I want to emulate that. I am not that courageous, but I admire, you know, women who basically the odds are against them and they just keep moving forward. <clears throat> and this is, you know, it's a brilliant story and I would like to see it in more in the mainstream myself. Is there anywhere that we can find Ida in pop culture? To be honest, there really isn't. Because when I was researching her, I love being able to read everything I can, listen to all the podcasts, watch all the YouTube things, get the documentary. If there's a movie about it, I am going to watch it a million times. And for her, unfortunately, it's really just a lot of, articles. And there are some YouTube videos too, but in terms of a documentary, uh, really kind of breaking down her life, there's nothing that's recent that would be, you know, on Netflix or easily accessible to to watch, which is really a shame because what a story, right? And it's completely real. We're going to stop here for today, but be sure to join us next week for part two of my interview with Melanie Hamilton where we continue our conversation about Ida B. Wells and why this history is so important, especially today. And we're going to learn more about Melanie's passion project, Savor and Your. Thanks for joining us today and have a great week.